So uh, we'll begin uh, by just reading the scripture that is assigned by the lectionary for this day, this first Sunday of Easter, uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there. This is from the 20th chapter of St. John. When it was evening on that day, and again, that's Easter day, uh, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But... Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later... Uh, His disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So uh, just a rich uh, continuation of the gospel story from Easter Sunday morning, a kind of transition in scenes, if you will, from the garden tomb uh, out, out to this place where the disciples have fled to and locked themselves away in fear. There's such rich imagery here, a lot to think about. Maybe it inspires a question or even a comment, something strikes you you'd like to share. Uh, I'll begin as, uh, just to get us kind of, uh, prime the pump a bit as I began the first service, uh, after last Sunday on Easter Sunday. In the afternoon, I got a call from one of, uh, our nephews, Gabe. Gabe's about a ninth grader. He's, uh, he's a goofball of a kid. Ten. Thoughtful, but <laughs> Gabe's always right on the edge of, you know, trouble. Uh, but he's a, he's the funniest kid there you could meet and uh, anyway so Gabe called me EC never calls me but uh, I could see it was Gabe uh, he calls me Easter Sunday in the afternoon he says listen I was at church this morning and I was listening to the uh, story about uh, Jesus being placed in the tomb in this giant boulder sealing the entrance of the tomb so the pastor was talking about these women getting these spices and stuff to go put on Jesus body But Gabe's question was, those women knew, everybody knew that the tomb was sealed by a giant boulder. You couldn't get in there. So what were they doing? What did (laughs) they, they, why did they 
why did they do that? You know? And I said, I'm not sure I've ever thought about that question again. <laughs> That's the kind of question that we like to sort of, it's, a, it's kind of a doorway into the story, and you can walk through it and look around and see where your imagination and your faith might lead you. And as I sort of sat with that question after I told Gabe I don't know and hung up on him, I, I, th- I thought about it throughout the day, and I thought, you know, p- part of me, I guess, I feel like those, those women loved Jesus so much. I mean, he had changed their lives so much. They, they loved their Lord, and they, they wanted to do for him what they had grown up knowing was the thing to do in their faith tradition. They got the things ready in spite of the fact that it was impossible to do what they, they knew on some level. They couldn't do what needed to be done, but that just out of love and compassion, they gathered the, 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 the parts of the, the, the things that their faith required to, to, to anoint uh, the, the body of someone who had died. And just out of love, uh, love and sort of habit, they, they, they started off with those things toward the tomb. You know, it's kind of the way I first thought of it. And then I thought more about it, and I thought, but also, I guess, kind of an alternative to that could possibly be that these, these women, on some level, part of them wanted to hope for or actually even believed that what Jesus had been telling all of them, that on the third day I will rise again, has happened, or something has happened, or something unexpected may well be true at that tomb that place where things go to end. And so part of them and their faith drew them to that place out of some beginning of hope. So I just think it's a, it's a, it's a good way to, for us to just, so maybe something in the Easter story catches your imagination. We had some great questions this morning related to, uh, all, you know, all different aspects. Uh, of, of the story. So we'll see the, uh, if there's somebody brave, get us started. And uh, we'll throw a timer up on the clock. The time tends to get away from us and kind of give us a sense of where we're at. But it might be anything related to the Easter story, related to the gospel we just heard, read, where the disciples are locked away in fear. It might be some question about the Bible. We had a question about the way the Lord's Prayer is translated and how there's another kind of newer <laughs> version of that. What does that mean? You might have a question about anything. We're not here as kind of Bible experts. We're here as discussion guides, and we'll, we'll kind of wrestle with these things together. Um, I'm not sure how we're doing this, but I can tell you my name's Karina, and I just wanted to say that Easter story from Gabe is very intriguing. Um, I have to say, those women just thought they could move the boulder themselves. Yeah. They probably, they probably asked some men to help, and they were too busy, and they said, we can do it, let's go. And that's what happened. That's all I had to say. There you go. That's fantastic. Boom. I, I, I think you're probably right. You're pro- that's probably it. I would have climbed it. Oh, yeah. That is awesome. Hi, I'm Hello. Steve. Hi, Steve. I'm pretty loud. That's all right. Yeah, we want it nice uh, and loud so our, our people on the podcast can hear you. Okay. And streaming. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just interested in the differences between the New Testament and the Old Testament. They seem to conflict that Jesus 
I don't think would ever march on Jericho and knock it down. Or, you know, he wouldn't have a slingshot like David and kill the giant. And the New Testament um, is pretty much based on the golden rule and not an eye for an eye. So I'd just like to, I'm, I'm conflicted about that. That's a great and, and common question. Uh, yeah, so um, one of the things we can say is that uh, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, we sometimes refer to as the Old Testament, um, they, the, the, they run the full theological gamut of there's all kinds of instances of graciousness and forgiveness uh, uh, throughout uh, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, part of the reason we, we love them um, but there are also, you know, there are also some very violent uh, episodes and, uh, you know, that, that are attributed to God's will, you know, that, that you know, the Israelites should, uh, uh, you know, should, should, in entering the promised land, should wipe out every man, woman, and child, for instance. And there's all, there's all kinds of very troubling, violent imagery uh kind of woven throughout the stories of the scripture. So I guess part of the, my, my first response is it's a, it has something, the way you approach this and understand this has something to do with the way you approach and understand scripture and all its various genres and whether you uh, are have, have a sense that the, the scripture is uh, sort of a, a, a straight line, um, God's word, God, uh, God's speaking through these human beings uh, and, and declaring for all eternity the way things have been, are, and always will be. Or if there are ways to understand Scripture that it is this uh, group of people's understanding of their engagement with God and how that's impacting and affecting their lives and how, where they're going and how they're moving forward. Uh, and so these are... Very, these are very different kind of approaches uh, to, to, to the Bible. So for me, I read those stories and I think of those Israelites who have been, they have been so set upon and overrun by foreign adversaries and, and, and looking for in some way a way to say that God is on our side and God, God will, you know, help us see our, our, our vengeance and, and so it's an expression of those kinds of very human uh, reactions and emotions, uh, more so in, in, in cases than it is um, a depiction of a violent God uh, uh, that uh, somehow changed God's mind when it came around to the time of the New Testament writings and decided, you know, I was... I was pretty mean back then. I think I'm going to be much, you know, nicer now, and I'm not into smiting and smoting and devastating and all of that kind of stuff that you read about there. I think it's, for me, it's about the human understanding and interaction of how we are experiencing God and how do we communicate that and how did that end, you know, end uh, up being a part of our scriptural heritage. It's a very nebulous sort of kind of response, but that's sort of where I begin. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, look for, I think the way I've been taught, the way I've learned how to read scripture is to look for the thread of God's work on behalf of the, of, of God's people throughout all of scripture. 
So I think um, you may have noticed Chad called it the Hebrew Scriptures, not the Old Testament. This is, this is out of respect for our history when we call something the Old Testament versus the New Testament. You're sort of saying like, well, that old thing isn't relevant anymore. This new thing is the thing we believe now. Um, and we can see how anti-Semitism hurts our society all the time. And so it's important for us to, to give respect to that scripture and, and the history that's involved in there. So calling it the Hebrew scriptures is just the, the history of our people group, right? So um, it's part of our shared history with uh, two other major religions. It's important that we hold it to that standard. I think also you just look at... Um, the the Hebrew scriptures is like Chad said it's a perspective so it it's it was and to remember that it was oral first before it was written just means that these were stories that were shared around you know I sort of picture around fires around um, you know groups of people sitting around hearing the history of their people before it was ever written down means to me this was their under their understanding of the world and of God just was sort of the way they wrote. I mean, it was the way they spoke about it. So it was only one perspective. And so that's an important thing to kind of keep in your mind too, as you go through and say, what, what does this story, if it was, if it was told to a group of people, what, what question were we trying to answer here? What were, what were we trying to teach people about God? What were we trying to, um, learn about so the story of job whether or not you believe it's true to me the story of job was just people's trying to trying to understand why does bad stuff happen right like they were just trying to answer that question which is a very common question and it is just one story of how they were trying to answer one question and you can find things like that throughout all of scripture where people were were trying to understand god's action and so they they spoke about how they understood God's action in the world. And to me, it's easier to sort of take an overview of it, kind of take a step back and say, what, what were we trying to understand about the world and about God in this story or in this history or in this moment of Scripture? And why was it preserved, right? What does it teach me about God? And why did we hang on to this piece versus other things we didn't hang on to? That... Not everybody finds that as interesting as I do, um, but I find that to be a really interesting practice when you're reading scripture. Thanks for that. Thanks for that question, Steve. <laughs> All right, so in the gospel reading for today... She's got notes. Oh, gosh. I don't have notes. I'm just looking at <laughs> the looking passage. down. Um, Jesus has received the Holy Spirit, and we confess a co-eternal spirit with the Father and with the Son. And so I'm just curious about Jesus' declaration of receive the Holy Spirit. Like, is something new about the Spirit entering into the world? Or, like, why does Jesus declare that if the Spirit is already present? That's Jesus breathing on them. If any of you read my uplift this week, you know how I feel about like people breathing on me. I think that's real. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> weird. Uh, I think the spirit is. So my interpretation, uh, the spirit is always present, just like God is always present. Um, the Spirit is always present. I think sometimes we need to be told the Spirit is present. So I feel like there's this moment where Jesus is like, 
the spirit is here. Like receive this, this presence of God in the room. Like receive the presence of God. I think there's a moment which, uh, you know, to me is interesting is when Jesus breathes on them. It's not like they hold their breath, right? They also breathe in. And so, though maybe your instinct when somebody breathes on you is to like hold your breath for a minute. Um, but isn't that a lovely metaphor about how we feel about God too, where, where God is given to us and we sort of have a moment of like, no, I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want what's happening here. Um, so I think there's this, it, it, it's a, a thing that happens naturally, right? We don't think about our breath very often. We don't think about breathing in. So this moment of Jesus breathing on the disciples and them taking a breath into me is like this beautiful, mutual dance of how God interacts with us and in our lives and in the world. That is just a cycle that happens without us thinking about it and God's present with us without us really thinking about it. And it's just a thing that is there. And I find that to be way more powerful and beautiful than even just the breath versus like the Holy Spirit requires winds and thunder and like fire everywhere, which will happen on Pentecost and we will talk about it, but that this sometimes it is a little um, less flash and sometimes it's just as simple as a breath, right? And so I feel like that's, that's very beautiful to me that this breathing in and out is, is just God. That breathing in and out is God, and even the the old uh, old language version of the Hebrew word for God is Yahweh, right? But we say Yahweh. Really, it's just Yahweh. It's it's there's no there's no actual. It's just sounds. It's sound of a breath. So you think about God breathing the word of God, the name of God into the room, and then breathing the name of God in is also very. It's just there's so much breath language around in Scripture, and I think. It's nice. It's a nice little image. I don't know if that's helpful. If you have something. Yeah, I, and also just where that particular um, exchange happens uh, <laughs> after the first Jesus' resurrection appearance to his disciples. So that uh, the, the sort of connecting it back to the, not only to resurrection, but to creation when God breathed life, ruach, into the, into, into human beings. God breathed life into us. And Jesus, who on the cross was said to have breathed his last, you know, now he's coming and he's breathing on us. And what, you know, when Christ breathes on you, you get something. And so what you get is life. You get life the way God breathed life into us to create us and, and breathed life into us to raise us from the dead. So, uh, I think it's, it's on Easter morning this happens. So it's connected to, to what's going on there. Um, all together. Thank you. Oh, we're done. All right. <laughs> Anything you might you might have had an experience at a different church, and you're thinking, oh, that's so different from what happens here." Or you might have uh, there we go. Uh, you might have a, a question related to um, to the Bible, current events. Current events. Yeah. Hi, Hi. Um, I'm Laura, um, and we started to talk about this before the service, but um, within Christianity, there are some different beliefs in kind of baptism and when it happens and why it happens, and um, not that you have to go through all of them, but maybe, you know, between Lutheran and Catholicism or Baptist or whatever it is, um, mm. talk about like when it happens and why and the ritual. Mm. Yeah, it's a great, a great kind of foundational question. There are different approaches to it in different faith traditions. Uh, some some uh, 
some Christian churches uh, utilize what is often referred to as a believer's baptism or, you know, the age of reason, whatever that is. They often use eight eight or but sometimes 12 and i'm like seriously that's the age of reason i hope not you know but uh anyway not to be flippant but uh at any rate the the sort of uh, essential difference between those uh, those uh christian traditions that uh embrace uh infant baptism in other words uh the the child has not made any sort of conscious choice for this sacrament to take place what they all hold in common, and this is contrary to those that say, not only, I mean, not, I, I get ahead of myself. So not, not, only, uh, not only should you be of the age of reason or old enough to decide for yourself. I mean, to us, that just sounds like it makes sense, right? If something this important is going to happen in your life, then you ought to play some part in it. You should, you should want it to happen, right? That's what, that's what the people who, uh, who embrace a believer's baptism want us to to understand and that's it just sounds reasonable really i mean this way most everything else works right but what we say what what we what our theological uh proclamation the gospel that we gather around is that what happens in baptism is very much like what happens in the lord's supper uh and it's very much like what happens in other grace gospel oriented things in our life like when someone says they love you or your parents choose you or you know all kinds of other instances of this it has literally absolutely nothing to do with my aptitude my my preparedness my age none of it it none of it matters this is if i've i've often used a kind of a metaphor of a ladder if god is up here in the heavens and i'm down here on the ground and there's a ladder the the believers baptism folks say you got to at least go three or four rungs up the ladder and god will meet you the rest of the way <laughs> and our tradition says you couldn't get on the first rung of that ladder if your life depended on it <laughs> You couldn't. If the first rung of that ladder means you understand clearly enough what God is about to do for you in this sacrament, then you're kidding yourself. Or if the first rung of that ladder means that you are no longer as selfish as you once were, or you're going to be more generous, or you're going to be less spiteful, or you're going to be less violent, or you're going to be more faithful, or you're going to have a perfect prayer life, or you're going to read and understand all of the scriptures. If any of those things or some version of those things are how you get on the first rung of the ladder, then you are kidding yourself. And they're talking about getting up to the third or fourth rung of the ladder. <laughs> Our tradition says we are goners. We can't make it even onto the first rung of that ladder. So God in Christ comes all the way down to get us. Paul says, for while you were yet sinners, while you were still stuck in your sin, God chose to die for you. So uh, this is the essential difference between a, a kind of a believer's baptism approach, which says, yes, you play a role. Yes, you should be ready. Yes, you should have confessed. Yes, you should understand. Yes, you should believe. Yes, you should behave. <laughs> all of those things are true. You should do all those things. But they ain't getting you any closer to God. What you need is redemption and salvation and forgiveness. And that is a free gift for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, so you can't run around boasting about it. It's a free gift. This is essentially what we uh, understand. Yeah. And we also believe uh, 
in one baptism, right? So that we don't need to we don't need to come back and be like, well, I need to get rebaptized because I sort of fell away for a while, but then I came back, and it's like, no, 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 like we believe in one baptism. You are named, claimed a child of God, so that whatever happens in your life, you are still a child of God. And and to me, that that is the thing. I have definitely said this on a ask the pastors before, but like that's the thing to hold on to then. So then. When you're wondering, when you have one of those days where you wake up and you're like, gosh, I don't know what I believe, or I was just the worst version of myself to all of the people I love, or whatever you are struggling with, that, that there's still that thing where you're like, it, it, in, in the eyes of God, I am a beloved child of God, and all this stuff that is bringing me down and making me feel like I'm not worthy, or I'm not good enough, or I don't deserve it, which is true, right? It doesn't change how God has acted on my behalf. It doesn't change what God sees when God looks at me. And so, to me, I'm like, that is the thing. At the, at the end of somebody's life, they're not having to ask the question, did I do enough? Did I, did I believe the right things or say the right things or love people good enough? Or did I do, did I do life good enough to be worthy of what is next? Did I, that people are on their deathbed scared that they might not have done enough to warrant, you know, like the reward of heaven or, or life after death. And it's like, no, all you did was sit there and take it as, you know, like as a baby, they just sit here and take it. And like, that's what's so beautiful about baptisms when it's infants is that they are, yes, like Leo, adorable, right? Like that smile on that kid, so cute. When he gets baptized, he's probably going to be smiling, but that is not what warrants him the gift he's given in that moment, right? Like he is just going to take it. And sometimes we appreciate when kids cry as they get baptized. And parents are like, please don't let my kid be the one that cries when they get baptized. But we also love that because that's kind of how we feel about this gift that is given. We're like, no, 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 no. I want to be able to earn it. I want to say, I did that. I made that choice. I made that decision. That was me. And we love that. And instead God says, no, that's not you. This is all me all me all me and that is what makes baptism to me the most beautiful thing and so do i think um do i think it matters if your kid is six weeks or six months or whatever no it doesn't you can six years it doesn't matter 60 years how old was (laughs) how old was molly 89 so like it doesn't matter right the age does not matter it is the action of god in the moment and so that that is the thing that we really hang our hat on at the end of the day that we can say your life it matters to the people around you it matters how you love people it does but it does not change what god sees when god looks at you and that to me is what is so beautiful and powerful and it's the thing the only thing you have to hold on to sometimes on the worst days and the best days we both got fired up about that just you were both like i used to go to church camp with a neighbor kid and (laughs) They do altar calls every summer. You know what an altar call is? Like, come forward and accept Jesus into your heart. The pastor was so good at describing for all of us campers, like, are you ever sometimes mean to your sisters? You know, uh, I have three sisters. I'm like, yeah, that's all I am is mean to my sister. Like, you know, so every year I would go, yeah, well, he's describing me again. I would go back up and accept Jesus again because I, I guess it didn't take last year, you know? <laughs> and, and then the next year he, would, he was so good. I'm like, yep, that's me, uh, you know? And I think, uh, you know, until we come to appreciate really the grace of God, 
the unwarranted, unmerited, unsolicited sometimes <laughs> grace of God, uh, then we can stop chasing after our own salvation and just accept it for the gift that it is. So that's really what we, that's a great question. We can throw. We, we we don't have another service coming after this, Nick. So if, if we have uh, if we have more, we got one, more time. One, more question? Anyone? You don't. I mean, you don't have. All right. Good. Good. Those were fantastic. The time flies every time we do this, and it is a little <laughs> uh, it is a little unique, and it takes a certain kind of community that's willing to step out of the rhythms of their regular worship. So, so we always appreciate it. Uh, the, the podcasts are always fun. Go back and listen to how each service is different. The, the 9 o'clock hour was completely different from this. We mm-hmm. encourage them uh, to listen to this one. You'll be able to do that uh, sometime later tomorrow. But thanks again for engaging the faith in this way, uh, for being the kind of community that's open to it. So we'll.